Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 91 of Weekly Weights. Wow, there's a test of pop. Good start to the show. I'm Alex Hayes. My co-host, as always, is Will. And joining us is Jacob Skeppis. Jacob, say hello. Hello. I'm so pleased to have been on the episode where you finally hit puberty, Alex. Do you reckon you'll break 5'8 now that, <laughs> now that your nuts are dropping? Well, I'm actually the second tallest person in this episode, which is good. <laughs> yeah, true. Jacob is... <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> no. Jacob's joining us via Zoom. He's not in the building. And he doesn't quite get on the, te- on the computer screen either. No. Well, I mean, the computer screen is not to scale, but... You can just see his hair. <laughs> How tall are you, Jacob? What's left of it? What's the most, that's the most important oh. qualification. E-stat to us. How tall are you? How much do you weigh? And what's um, your body fat percentage? Cool. These are the good questions. Uh, 172 centimetres. How much do I weigh? I actually haven't stepped on a scale, believe it or not, since um, the strength fortress in December. So I don't know what I weigh. Um, but I would guesstimate my body fat percent is around definitely six. Maximum six. <laughs> Maximum six. Yeah, I, I'd say mid-teens, thereabouts. There you go. Sick. That's, well. that's just pure fucking spitballing guesstimates. There's there's no um, measurements behind those. So we started off with a testy pop and now we have a dick measuring contest. Yeah. Welcome to the yeah. show. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So we've got Jacob on to talk about uh, yearly planning for powerlifters. So that's what we're going to discuss today as you can tell by clicking on the episode viewers yeah. listeners viewers viewers not viewers Listeners. Audience. so let's start off by um jacob what is the purpose of um yearly planning in competitive powerlifters mm-hmm. so i think yearly planning um is very much part and parcel with the principle of uh, periodization, which is something that has been studied in the literature. And when we talk about uh, what periodization is, uh, I, I like the definition by Buford and others uh, in a paper they wrote in 2017, which was the planned manipulation uh, and organization of training variables to magnify adaptations to training, minimize injury risk and peak performance for competition. So I think that definition encompasses why we yearly plan because we obviously want to organize training in a very structured logical and sequential manner we want to get the adaptations that we want at the right times uh, in training uh, we want to minimize injury risk which means changing the variables enough so that we don't uh, you know experience monotony strain overuse injuries all those sorts of things and we want to maximize fitness at the right time um, and decrease fatigue uh, at the same time that we want to peak our fitness uh, so the performance is highest and we can look to the fitness fatigue model, uh, which was built upon the gas theory by Hans Selye uh, that he came up with in 1937. So I think that's the broad strokes of what uh, the purpose of yearly planning is. I think that's a really, like, it's a good and comprehensive answer, but there might be some listeners who think, well, most powerlifters compete two or three times a year. You know, some, uh, some of those random heroes who turn up like six or eight times a year, but most compete two or three times. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah she's shit too um so <laughs> so if you compete two or three times a year a lot of listeners might think well 
your yearly planning should be as simple as just having an off-season and an on-season. Like you're either in prep or you're not. Um, so I guess what's the added benefit of looking at your calendar, roughly saying these are when our competitions are going to be, and then starting to impose periodization in the space in the middle, starting to say this is when I might emphasize certain training qualities. What's the added benefit of that? I think the, the benefit really scales with level of advancement. I don't think uh, your beginners and your weekend warriors who are, you know, going out there and hitting maybe a one and a half times body weight squat, uh, you know, a one times body weight bench like you will. Um, <laughs> and, you know, maybe if they're lucky hitting a two times body weight deadlift and been training for, uh, you know, six months to a couple of years. I don't think the need to look in a lot of detail at the yearly plan is necessary. Uh, can it help? Maybe, but I think the benefits uh, are magnified when somebody starts to become uh, more and more advanced because they need more and more specialization um, in what they are and are not training for at any point in time. So uh, does that answer the question? Partly, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep leading you down the track a bit further. So, so with more advanced lifters, we've got this greater imperative to specialize our training. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess the next part of the question is how much diversity in there in what training that could be constituted as off season training is for powerlifting. Like how many different, how many different attributes might we train for and what types of timescales do we need to actually do them well? Yeah, so now we're starting to, to get somewhere. So I think uh, when we look to what adaptations are going to have uh, a direct benefit on maximal strength, we know that hypertrophy is going to be one of them. Uh, and to a lesser degree, we could say that uh, you know strength endurance, which is for the most part hypertrophy, but that more uh, endurance type uh, aerobic capacity could be beneficial, especially if uh, a powerlifter, for example, is very unfit and we know that we need to train hard to build muscle and if their uh, you know central fatigue is limiting their ability to induce uh, localized fatigue and put tension on the muscle then it could be very worthwhile spending some time uh, with very different training attributes such as uh, improving their aerobic capacity so the central fatigue is no longer a limiting factor when they do start training in the moderate to high rep ranges um, so again it's going to be context and individual dependent but i think uh if we conduct a needs analysis and we can identify what the limiting factor for the athlete is and where they need to specialize in order to improve their strength long term uh, that's when we can start to have dedicated phases towards those targets and i think um you know structuring those phases in a sequential manner uh towards competition makes a lot of sense uh, you know, you don't want to be super aerobically fit or, you know, inducing a lot of fatigue very close to competition. So we want to do that further away from competition, uh, especially high priority meets such as the nationals or international and world's level competition. Uh, so I think it makes more sense to do those things further away from competition and then gradually increase uh, specificity as we are close, close to competition. And that's where we just start to balance the, the two primary principles of play here, which are specificity and variation. So we'd have more variation or at least, uh, you know, training attributes that are further away from the primary fitness quality that strength athletes and powerlifters need, which is maximal strength. Um, and then as we get close to competition, we start to scale specificity up, um, you know, bringing rep ranges down, volume down, all those sorts of things, decreasing any kind of um, diversity in the training if they're doing aerobic work, conditioning, stuff like that. So 
I'm going to say back to you kind of what I heard and please tell me if I'm, if I'm on the right or wrong track, which is when we're a long way from competition, we have more of an opportunity to train for qualities that are in the immediate term general for powerlifting. So improving. Yeah, so that's where we look, that's where we look at um, whether or not a training quality has an immediate or delayed uh, benefit to whatever our primary outcome is. And the example I gave before in improving aerobic capacity and having a downstream effect on somebody's ability to train hard and induce localized muscular fatigue without central uh, fatigue being a limiting factor in the moderate to high rep ranges that can help them build muscle, which can then facilitate further improvements in strength. Uh, that would focusing on their aerobic work uh, and improving their aerobic capacity would have a delayed uh, benefit to their maximal strength as opposed to an immediate benefit. So yes, further away from competition, you would be looking at training qualities that have a delayed uh, benefit rather than something that's immediate uh, and measurable in an acute sense. So I guess, you know, logically it follows that if we're doing things that have a delayed benefit, we at least need sufficient time to realize that benefit in our, com um, in our competition plans as coaches. Do you then think that we should be looking at the calendar at the start of the year and saying, given the athlete in front of me and what they need to get better, we should place comps here, here and here. Or should we should our first principles approach be let's decide when to train and then see what time sorry when to compete and then see what time we have to train and what we can build in that space? Well, generally the calendar is dictated by whatever federation the athlete's competing in, and if they're a serious competitor, which we're going to assume they are, if they're at the advanced level and need this kind of detail in their planning, um, then we let the calendar dictate uh, when and where we train. In my opinion. All right, so. You've given a really good, um, you've given a really good rationale for why we might, you know, do some general training that facilitates more specific training down the track and try and build a wide base. And you know, those are themes that Alex and I have spoken about quite a bit on the podcast. But um, what would the advantage be, or of, or what would the disadvantage, I should say, be of just having a really reactive approach to your training planning, where you you do something until it kind of stops working, and then you say well, what do we need a bit more of now and then do that and just continue with that type of approach until it's time to start preparation? What would you leave on the table with that? That's a good question. I think before we go any further with that discussion, it's important to remember that everything works in theory and that's precisely the problem with this kind of discussion. Um, yeah, these kind of things look great on paper. When I say them out loud, it's like they make a lot of sense, um, but they often fall apart when applied in the real world because we are working with humans who are very dynamic. They're experiencing a lot of changes in their lifestyle, their circumstances, their goals might change, they might get injured, they might have travel, they might have changes in their, their career, work, so on and so forth. Um, and this is why you know, we need to have that um, reactive mentality fed into the proactive planning. And they, it is, I don't think it's an either or situation. Uh, that's a false dichotomy in my opinion. Uh, I believe that we should plan proactively um, and use that as a guideline and then filter in um, reactive approaches that help us, you know, uh, navigate things on a you know day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis in response to any kind of changes. So uh, it's not to say that the theory doesn't uh, have value because I think it certainly does. And in an ideal world, if you have an athlete who is super committed, very consistent lifestyle, you know for the most part that you know what the plan uh, says is going to happen will happen. Um, you know you're going to move very close to what's theoretically ideal and optimal. 
Um, but if you do have an athlete uh, that is a little less uh, consistent or predictable um, in whatever regard that may be, and that influences the planning, um, you know, whether it be a small or large influence, um, I think it's good to be more reactive in those situations. Uh, so yeah, to answer the question now, I think uh, if you are reactive, especially if someone is at the advanced level, it can be hard to, to tease out whether or not they are improving um, in the right areas at the right time. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense um, from a coaching perspective to put boundaries on uh, timeframes for certain training goals. And it also brings a lot more clarity to the training process, both for the coach and the athlete. Uh, if you're just doing whatever you think is going to work at this point in time and then changing to the next thing when that stops working, uh, it can be hard for the athlete to buy in, I think, and it also can cause confusion for the coach. Uh, it takes a, a very experienced and very knowledgeable coach um, and a lot of trust from the athlete to be able to just do things solely and wholly reactively. Um, and I don't think many coaches are there yet. So I think having the, the terminology that we use, you know, in periodization theory, macro cycle, mesocycle, micro cycle, I think those time frames are very useful for putting constraints on various time periods and then directing the focus of both the coach and the athlete towards a, an objective within that time to do to do having the direction that things need to go uh, within that time frame we had you go just a little bit blurry in the last couple of sentences of your response then um you were saying using the periodization terminology is really handy Macrocycles, yep. microcycles, all that jazz um helps direct and helps direct an athlete and helps with your planning and then right about there you started fading out do you want to just give us the last two sentences again yeah, so I think it helps the athlete know what they're trying to achieve and also helping the coach uh, ensure that things are progressing uh, towards that objective within the time frame, uh, so that everybody's on the same page and then there's no confusion as to what needs to be done um, and when it needs to be done. I think um, I really liked early in your response there, you spoke about how um, everything works in theory and that we need we need sufficient exactitude in our planning to actually direct us to where, towards where we want to go and sufficient reactivity and flexibility in our planning to make sure that, you know, we can actually adjust things as we go. And so I'd like to debut an analogy that I thought of. Alex is curious and skeptical already. Here we go. Uh, I don't think I'm the first person to make this analogy, but, but if you think of training planning as a bit like a map or trying to navigate using a map, when your destination's a very, very long way away, so say I'm in Sydney now and I'm trying to get to Melbourne, which is 800 or 1,000 Ks from here, then the degree of detail that you need in the map to get me from Sydney to Melbourne is reasonably low. I need a sense of direction. And provided that I head off in some tangent roughly southwards, I'm going to be moving towards Melbourne and I can make minor course corrections. They'll keep me on track. But as I start getting into Melbourne and start navigating my way to JPS, the mecca of powerlifting training in Melbourne, to see Jacob Skeppers, He's just flexed his bicep on screen. Two years running best male powerlifting team at Open Nationals. Huge. So as I, start, as I start approaching JPS, I need more and more resolution in my map and more and more detail so that I can ensure that my course is more exact because slight, slight deviations in my course from there might take me very, very wide of my mark. And that's analogous to getting closer to competition where if we're six or so weeks out 
and we start doing training that's only tangentially related to powerlifting, we're no longer going to see improvements in the remaining six weeks that are going to help us on competition day. And then right as I'm getting very close to JPS, I need to start looking at the traffic conditions and things like that to ensure that if there's a street that's closed, I can drive around it and still get to my destination. And that's like in those final few weeks of powerlifting training prior to a competition where we might do a little bit of troubleshooting depending on fatigue and performance to ensure that our best performance comes in on the day that we want it, which is competition. And so the degree of planning exactitude and reactivity that we need is going to change over the timescale in which we're planning. Does that make sense to you, Jacob? So he disappeared again. We lost him again. Yeah, I, I really like that analogy. I think a few things that I would... No, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, yeah, keep going. You got me? You're back. Okay. I really like the analogy for the most part. I think a few things that we could tweak with that are the, the, necess the necessity of course correction relative to proximity of the destination. I think course correction is always important. And I think uh, paying attention to the conditions uh, is always important, irrespective of proximity to the uh, destination. So I think uh, if you take those two concepts and you apply them loosely at the start and then more specifically and you, you dial them in a little bit uh, towards the end, I think that's beneficial. But I, I think to say that it's only relevant once you're close to competition to start course correcting more and more and more and only start paying attention to the conditions when you're near JPS and you know, your destination, I think that's probably uh, erroneous. I think we should, we should always be doing that um, irrespective of uh, the distance we are from competition. Um, but I think I totally agree that you need less and less, um, I guess, exactness uh, in the plan uh, for the objective, uh, which is what we're trying to achieve when we reach that destination. As long as we're moving in the right direction within the parameters of the objective at any given time point, then I, I totally agree with that um, analogy. So uh, to use uh, your example, if we're in Sydney, and let's say that we're f focusing uh, at that point um, on just moving towards Melbourne, um, which is doing some exercise, and you know, doing some lifting and some kind of you know squat pattern, hinge pattern, bench pattern. Uh, I still think that we need to be focusing um, on how we perform those movements. You know, what kind of rep ranges, the quality of uh, work that we're doing, and obviously seeing pro progression um, at whatever point that is, so that we are moving closer towards that objective. Um, and then as we get closer and closer to Melbourne, we would just simply you know decrease rep ranges, for example, increase specificity a little bit, start having some more barbell lifts that resemble the competition lifts slightly more, uh, focusing on uh, performance a little bit more and, and narrowing the bandwidth of uh, training qualities that we're trying to uh, achieve. Uh, and then again, narrowing that bandwidth further and simply uh, increasing specificity. But I think, yeah, if you look at a funnel, um, I, I like to use that analogy when we're, we're planning long-term. Uh, we want to start broad and then come narrow um, as we move through uh, the the timeline of whatever that may be uh, for competition. Yeah, so you're kind of saying we could either elect to drive to Melbourne down the highway or we could start bush bashing and walk. And obviously one's going to be better than the other. So you still need a sufficient degree of planning to make sure you're not, yes. you're not wasting Correct. time. All right. Yeah. Um, so what about, what about when we look at our yearly plan? Um, how might that sometimes influence shorter term training decisions? So say, you know, we're, we have a high-level competitor. We know that they've got a year off between nationals, but then every second year they're going to attempt 
to do an international competition and that's on only a three month turnaround after nationals. Um, and say in this case, we've got somebody whose developmental needs are still more hypertrophy, you know, I'm filling out a weight class, things like that, but they have the short term imperative of, of coming in more prepared for a powerlifting comp. How might, how might the demands of our yearly plan then influence what decisions we make about their training in the three months between nationals and, and then subsequent comp? Mm. Well, I think that's a really specific example. Um, and with a specific example of that, you're going to obviously bring in um, more context related to, to the athlete, um, which will guide the short-term decisions that you make. But I think fundamentally when you have somebody with um, multiple objectives, uh, be it developmental needs as well as competition uh, objectives, I think that that's a conversation you need to have with the athlete and you, you seriously need to consider their needs and wants and obviously have a conversation with them to balance uh, the any short-term desires they have uh, in competition and uh, make sure that you're meeting those to some degree um, to make sure that they do enjoy competing because I think if you... Uh, continuously put aside the the needs in competition for an athlete and you're focusing so much on their developmental needs it can be quite demotivating I've definitely seen that with a number of uh, my athletes uh, so yeah I would say that if you have somebody who is still requiring development um, that should always be at least some part of the training plan um, right until the point where it is a necessity to drop that uh, objective out of the equation uh, so that you can focus on um, maximizing their performance in competition. And I think that's where you just need to have a priority meets. And this is something I'm pretty big on is selecting meets where it's a lower priority and making sure that the development mental needs are prioritized in that preparation uh, over the competition performance. And then when they're uh, peaking for, a, or they're preparing, sorry, for a high priority meet, that's when the developmental needs are put to the side and you focus on doing what you need to do to maximize their performance on the platform. Interesting. So um, how would we change a yearly plan for a lifter across their training career? Like from someone who is, sort of starting out in the intermediate phase to someone who's much more advanced, what are the kind of things that change in the plan in terms of how many competitions they do? Um, maybe one will be high priority versus two. What are the kind of considerations that we have there and how would we plan? Yeah. So the first thing I would say that beginners really don't need a hell of a lot of planning. They need more platform uh, exposure and um, competition experience so they can see if they even like the sport before you go worrying about planning long-term for them because if they don't like it and it's not something they want to do uh, consistently, then uh, you can plan away as much as you want, but it's going to be worth less than the paper it's written on. Uh, so again, for beginners, I think that for the most part, you just focus on competency uh, in the competition lifts. Uh, they will build muscle if they're just training with any sufficient amount of volume and intensity, which they should be um, as a requirement to improve their strength. Uh, but as somebody starts to get towards the intermediate phase, I think that's where planning becomes a little bit more important, uh, especially teaching them the necessity of having different training objectives at different times and how that plays into their long-term development. So 
having an intermediate who is training the low rep ranges, hitting, you know, singles year round um, is probably not going to be the best way to go about planning uh, for them. I think teaching them how to train hard uh, to build muscle. And that's where obviously muscle size is going to start to become a limiting factor in their strength um, is going to be very important. So starting to bias more of their training towards hypertrophy and having dedicated periods uh, for hypertrophy is going to be very, very useful. And that will again scale uh, upwards with an advanced lifter. And I think having an advanced lifter focus on, uh, you know, weak areas and whatever that may be for them um, and any limiting factors at that point um, is typically going to be um, either muscle size or technical mastery, um, you know, at heavy loads. And that's a pretty fine balancing act. And in terms of number of competitions, I think that was part of the question, wasn't it, Alex? Yep. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure on this one. I think the jury's still out a little bit, but I think with beginners, they can compete as much as they want, really. Anywhere from, say, you know, four to six times a year, I don't think is really going to harm them too much. Uh, more than that, it's not going to be super beneficial and anything less than twice a year is probably not ideal. So within the two to four times a year, I think it's a good range and that can probably carry on until they start to get to the late intermediate stages where you probably want to start picking two to three comps a year. Um, for advanced lifters, I think... Again, two to three comps a year is fine, but that's where you just need to have priority meets and you know, non-priority meets and picking your battles, essentially. Um, you know, the example I can use, uh, Sam, Carl uh, as examples, and even Pearson. Um, I'll use Pearson because he's, he's a Muppet, so we'll talk about him, and Muppets are always entertaining. Uh, so Pearson, very uh, competent lifter, a lot of potential, in 2018, bombed at nationals. Um, I wasn't coaching him, but I took over after that. And, you know, his next meet was purely a non-priority meet. Um, we are focusing on a lot of developmental stuff still. Uh, even though he is quite advanced, he still has areas to develop, um, you know, in not only muscular size, but basic competencies in competing and managing himself in training. Um, so he's... First meet uh, after that was a non-priority meet where we we're just focusing on getting platform experience, putting up some numbers, and obviously building confidence again after a schmozzle of a nationals outing. Um, and then we set our sights on uh, nationals after that. So I think it's always a good approach with uh, your more advanced lifters just for longevity purposes um, to pick when you are going to peak them hard and when you might have a softer peak um, and look to just get on the platform, put up some numbers, qualify, um, and then, you know, get them in the ballpark of where they need to be um, for their high-priority meets. And would you say that one priority meet for an experienced lifter or an advanced lifter would be the way to go per year or maybe two? Um, I would say two if they're, if they're competing at, say, a Nationals uh, or a Worlds. And, again, this is going to be context-dependent. For example, Carl DeFalco doesn't need to really peak to win a Nationals. So, you know, he can go in and hit openers and he'll still win nationals. Uh, so if I was to, you know, pick him hard for that and then pick him hard for a Worlds, I think that'd be overkill. Uh, but if he had to, if he had some stiff competition, I think you, you've got to do what you've got to do. Um, you know, if you want to qualify for Worlds and you want to set records and hit PBs and things like that, if the athlete wants to do those things, then, you know, sometimes you have to... Um, 
call the shots based on the level of competition that you're competing against with an advanced athlete. Um, and, you know, that's going to also bring into account a lot of other variables. Uh, for example, Sam, um, you know, if he peaks hard twice here, well, I can guarantee you that it'll be out for the you know, nine to 12 months following that. Um, you know, whereas someone like Carl, quite robust, a bit smaller, even Pearson, uh, you know, these are smaller athletes, a little bit less uh, injury prone um, and sensitive to pain. So they can, they can be pushed a little bit more. So I think uh, the athletes are, tolerance to stress and obviously hard overloading and heavy training is going to be a, a huge consideration there. So that's why, again, Liz Craven can fucking compete six times a year is because she's an absolute, she's a hobbit. She's, you know, a smidge above fuck all in terms of height. So, you know, for her hitting some big lifts, she can bounce back in a week or two. Whereas someone like Sam, a little bit taller, a little bit more fragile, had some previous experiences with pain anything that sort of flares him up uh, in the slightest way, um, you know, it, it could be a three month rehabilitation process and that just cuts into his time, um, you know, making gains and putting kilos on the bar. So w should we take that as you saying that Sam's a bit of a softy? Yeah. I've told him this many, many times. <laughs> um, I want to, I want to talk actually a little bit about the soft skills of coaching around this now mm. as well. So you spoke about how using training structure can be a really good way of us getting buy-in from our athletes and giving them some direction, which I think is that's really important and perhaps underappreciated. Um, in the case of, say, a beginner, though, you said they don't need as much longer-term training planning. How do we frame discussions with them around saying we're kind of just going to do the things that you need to do in the short term? How do you keep their horizons down and when do you start thinking it might be worth telling them, hey, this is the plan longer term? I think when they start to become interested, to be honest, I think when they start saying, Hey, what am I going to do after this competition? Um, you know, when am I going to compete next year? When they start, when they start to lift their gaze and look a little bit more long-term at the, the calendar and their development, I think that's when you start to open up that dialogue. I think if there's too much top-down influence from the coach, um, it can impose quite a lot of pressure um, mm. unnecessarily and at the wrong times. So, uh, at, you know, for, for some athletes. Um, and it, it is hugely psychological. Like there are so many personality differences um, that play into this, you know, for athletes who have some competitive experience in sport um, and they've competed at say a high level, they'll appreciate all the long-term planning and they'll be able to lift their gaze. You know, the minute they compete, they'll be like, yeah, cool. What comps am I doing next year? What am I going to do after that? How do I get to nationals? You know, I need to get X total to be in the top 10. That's going to qualify for me for this, this, this. This is what I want to do. And they'll start setting them goals themselves. But for a lot of uh, powerlifters, as you guys know, you know, any Tom, Dick and Harry can compete in powerlifting. Just look at Alex. So, you know, um, you don't really need to be an athlete if you want to do powerlifting. Um, and that brings into question uh, how we go about planning for those people because they have no experience with competing at, um, the level that we would plan for, uh, for say an advanced athlete, you know, with the annual plan. Um, so they're balancing their training around many other commitments and responsibilities, um, which will take precedent to the training plan. So I think, uh, that's always got to be a consideration, but by and large, I think when the athletes are lifting their gaze, thinking a little bit more long-term, uh, that's when we should start to meet them, um, with the planning of their training over the long haul. Um, but yeah, I think it should be a bottoms up uh, influence in terms of how far and long you plan for.
What about when you have a lifter who is very talented and is already quite um, sort of well-developed, but they're not really aware of it yet? When would you then lift their gaze for them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you just you just plant seeds. I, I, well, I like to plant seeds. If I have an athlete who's quite talented, has a bit of potential, um, I'll just start to show them some of the lifters that they you know could be competing against. For example, if I have a lifter who's doing a local meet, they do really well, um, and they're in the ballpark for, say, junior nationals, um, but that junior nationals isn't on the cards for this year, I'll just show them the results from junior nationals in, in their uh, weight class um and say hey you know this is the competition at junior nationals like this is something you could do and again i'm just planting seeds so that when they lift their gaze and they're like oh fuck yeah i like i'd like to do that that'd be something i'd be interested in it's like okay well now we can start planning for it have that discussion but i generally won't um you know impose it too much i used to i used to always be like top down planning for my clients telling them, hey, you know, this is the meet we're going to do and we're going to line our ducks up for this and that and we're going to try to get to here by this point in time. Um, but it always it always caused more problems than it solved, um, put it that way. It didn't really uh, facilitate any purposeful uh, and beneficial training, um, at least over you know the longer time scales. It was more of a, a pressure that I imposed on them and they felt uh, obligated to then do the thing that I wanted to do it wasn't something that they chose to do so I like to frame things uh, in a way that makes the athlete feel like they're choosing the plan and the direction that we take things and then I just help navigate them towards that and I obviously course correct um, and adjust the uh, the end goal or uh, the plan as per my uh, thoughts but it's never um, my thoughts solely so what about when we approach it from the other side? Say you've got an athlete who's an intermediate. They've gotten into powerlifting because they like lifting heavy weights and maxing out. And they're just entering that developmental period where you go, you know, you're really going to benefit from some targeted work away from the lifts, building muscle, having a bit of an off season. And you can see a long-term plan for them that's going to take them places, but they're a bit resistant to diving into something that's a longer-term commitment. How might you frame a discussion around that? Yeah, so two ways. One, I'll educate them uh, about why I think uh, deviating from the maxing out and you know competing in the short term is going to be beneficial. I'll explain to them uh, that building muscle is going to be the foundation of their long-term strength. And if they care about being strong, then this is something they should do. Um, and I'll also use uh, vicarious experiences. So uh, what people who are privy to me coaching on the gym floor or having discussions with clients will often see is, uh, you know, I'll grab my athletes on the gym floor and say, Hey, come over here, tell so-and-so, uh, you know, what happened when you took an off season and you spend more time building muscle, tell them what happened to your strength. And I'll let the other athletes, uh, you know, explain their experiences doing the things that I want my athlete or this athlete in particular to do who might be hesitant to do it. Um, I'll let the other athletes, you know, lead by example, so to speak. Um, and I've found that to be a very uh, beneficial way of uh, getting buy-in in that sense. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'll do whatever I can to get some buy-in um, to follow the plan that I think is going to be best for the athlete. And if they're not willing to do that after my best attempts uh, at getting them to trust the process, as Mr. Hayes would say, uh, then I, you know. TM. Oh, Trust the process, your, um, T-M. What do you do? What do you do it? 
what's your thing with Matt and Al and um fucking Potsy? It's like a fucking O M C. That's right. Yeah. So Alex, where this is an audio only podcast. <laughs> Alex is throwing Sorry. out gang songs <laughs> and Jacob's throwing them back because he and two fellow powerlifting Australia powerlifters have a little gang called OMC and they make finger signs of the letters. It's it's a bit lame. It's very backstreet. Don't be jealous. Don't be jealous, Don't be jealous that you're not involved, mate. Well, do you think it's lame? Yeah, I do. Will, do you want to start one? We, we'll yeah, start JPS. Around. Let's go. <laughs> JPS. <laughs> All right. So anyway, you were saying you want to, you want to facilitate buy-in and if they won't give it to you and they won't then, trust the process TM, then I'll let them take the course that they think is best. And at any point things don't work out as uh, we'd like them to, I make sure I give them a very, very friendly reminder as to, to what I suggested and why that might have been uh, the solution to those problems. And then that, uh, that kind of setback and failure um, is often the best teacher. And I really like the, uh, the Greek adage, uh, pathomata, mathemata, which is guide your learning and uh, guide your learning through pain. So I'm not opposed to letting my athletes uh, experience some pain sometimes and frustration uh, because often that's the best teacher. And sometimes you do have to walk the path yourself. Uh, to realize that, hey, that's probably not the best path to go down if I want to get to X destination. And from there, you can course correct and hopefully they will fucking listen. You uh, turned very evil there for a second. I was a little bit scared. Did I turn evil? Those, air, those eyes, man. Yeah, they, they lit up. Um, Papa matter, <laughs> matha matter. Sounds like yeah. Fui Fui Moimoy's <laughs> older brother. Um, fui Fui Moimoy. Do you remember him? <laughs> Yeah. Rugby league legend. That guy could run through a brick wall. I loved him. Um, <laughs> so That's what about? He was a brick wall. <laughs> yeah, he was the man. All right. Um, so we've spoken a lot in terms of training, but you actually coach Alex for nutrition. Can't tell because he's fat oh, as a house. Holy. Oh, can I try? <laughs> I mean, in as far as anyone can make Alex do anything, Chrissy tries yeah, to make him follow your nutrition. Have you seen the meaning vegetables? I've yeah, I'm doing, I'm vegetables. doing well, Lanny Will. It's all he talks about. Vegetables, game changers, um, <laughs> something to do with gladiators. So, so um, how important is it though? And Joe Rogan. <laughs> I love Joe Rogan. <laughs> um, how important is it? Have you watched the debate, Alex? Which oh, debate? it's horrible. The Rogan Don't one. Watch it. There's, a, there's a debate on Rogan between some wacky doctor and whoever that dude is. I've heard people talk about it so i haven't it's seen like, I the haven't movie's seen an game, hour i haven't long. seen game changers how long is the movie 90 minutes it. jacob about 90 minutes oh, it's, it's it's long it's yeah. long enough i couldn't finish it game changers um debate debate four hours long and i heard on the stronger by science podcast who yeah, keep ripping off all of our segments that um that there was a guy doing analysis of the debate and part one of his analysis of the four hour debate was like two and a half hours long. So it's just, it's expanding. So soon also, all there will be... I also heard that joke. Yeah, all there will be is game do analysis of the analysis that was four times longer than the analysis. Well, you should... He's cutting out. We lost him. He's going to say like 40 words in about five seconds now. Yeah. When it catches up. I'm back. One more time. You're back. I'm back. Yeah, you cut out. You cut out for the whole back end of that. You were saying I should do something. 
Oh no, I just said that you should do the analysis of the analysis. Look, some of my articles tend to they're lengthy, lengthier than they ought to be. So I'm sure if I wrote an analysis of the analysis, I could pretty much fill the remaining like bandwidth of the internet with game changers remaining related stuff and then we'd just be done it'd be a better use of your time than the official ratings boys will no shut up (laughs) jacob doesn't know official ratings boys i'll forward you some content so anyway (laughs) the reason we started talking about alex becoming a vegan was was that obviously there's a nutritional component to maximizing powerlifting performance as well um do you think when we look at a look at a powerlifter who's in these intermediate and advanced stages of development we should also be thinking about what times of the year it's best to make body composition changes and tying that to our training? Most definitely. I think um, it it doesn't need to be as complicated as what people think. Um, I would say that rule number one is avoid cutting into competition and losing weights over a more chronic period. So weeks and months uh, into a competition, if you can, if you're not, not a beginner um, and somebody who has um, equally, um, as important goals of improving body composition and strength. Um, if you're somebody who is serious about getting stronger, then I would say that rule number one applies to you. Um, and from there, that pretty much sets the foundations for how you go about structuring um, your timeframes for changing body composition. You want to be either maintaining or gaining weight uh, coming into competition as best you can. Um, and then trying to build muscle or lose fat uh, further out from competition. And I think, um, yeah, it's a good idea to try and lose fat in a hypertrophy phase if uh, you do need to make some body composition changes because you've got greater training volumes, which will hopefully preserve muscle just a little bit better uh, for you know, beginners and even early intermediates. You might see some recomp in the early phases, which would be nice. Um, but for advanced athletes, yeah, recomping as far away from competition as possible. Um, and then building muscle um, with hypertrophy training is always a good idea. Um, But for the most part, I would say that the best approach is to have a calorie surplus and a a gaining diet uh, when you're training for hypertrophy uh, to obviously augment uh, protein synthetic response from training to build muscle, Uh, then moving your calories to maintenance as you lower volume um, and increase intensity um, because obviously you have, you have less of a potent or a less potent, uh, hypertrophic stimulus. So it's just a good idea to obviously keep things in maintenance and train at a body weight that you'll compete at. And yeah, that's, uh, my, my approach there. I don't think it needs to be much more complicated than that. Um, if you reverse engineer and understand that you're competing here, um, and you want to be obviously maintaining weight as best as possible. Um, you know, for the training blocks leading up to that, um, your periods preceding that uh, will be dictated on what you need from a body composition perspective. So if you need to lose fat, uh, then you've been in a calorie deficit. If you need to gain muscle, you should be in a calorie surplus. Um, so it's going to be dependent on where you sit relative to your competition um, weight, obviously. Yeah. So the, the restrictions imposed by the class. Related to that, talking about weight classes, how would we decide for a lifter whether they need to go up or down a weight class? What are the things that we would look at? I would look at um, their weight, obviously, uh, relative to the upper end of the weight class. 
uh, and their body composition uh, at that point. So I think if somebody is carrying excess body fat that is of no benefits to their performance and they, yes, Alex, and they can uh, be at a better body composition uh, and a lighter weight whilst maintaining or improving performance, then you should be staying within that weight class until you max it out from a muscularity point of view um, and your body comps at a point where uh, you're not carrying unnecessary body fat. But if somebody's at the top end of the weight class and they are lean and they're at a body fat where they don't have unwanted or uh, unproductive uh, body fat, then uh, it's time to move up a weight class, I think. Uh, but that's also going to tie into whether or not somebody's a serious threat and uh, competitor at any given weight class. For example, Carl, Carl is uh, a good case study for this. Um, yeah, it's time for him to go up to the 77s, um, but I'm happy to keep him at the 69s and you know keep cutting down. You know, he's only two or three kilos above 69 pretty much year round, uh, so I'm happy for him to teeter around there, cut down. You know, at least 12 weeks out um and then just do damage in the 69 set more records win more titles all those sorts of things uh, but if somebody's in a developmental stage and they're not at the top of the game looking to set records win titles um i think you should always be looking to go up rather than down if you can all right man thank you so much um that about wraps it up for the questions that we had for you do you have anything you want to say in summary before we have a quick break and do underrated overrated properly rated Oh, we lost him. Oh, no. All right, we'll just take a break. (laughs) (laughs) Weekly loads. Kablammy. Everybody thought we'd left that in 2019. It's back. back. Kablammy. It's Weekly Weights, episode 91, here with Jacob Skepis. And we're going to do overrated, underrated, properly rated. Alex has been um, giving me lots of grief because I say that in the wrong order. We're doing overrated, underrated, properly rated. Alex and I have prepared topics. Jacob's going to give us the gospel on them. Jacob, number one from me, overrated, underrated, or properly rated, weighted stretching. Weighted stretching, as in just stretching with weights, no other form of movement. Yeah, I'm talking talking for hypertrophy. I'm going to give you boundaries. For hypertrophy, like DC-style weighted stretching. So. Overrated? Yeah. Go. Why do you think it's overrated? Yeah, you got you got to make your case. Yeah. I don't know how to fucking justify these claims. Jesus. Oh, fuck, you love to talk, um, mate. You just went on for 55 minutes and we couldn't get a word, word in sideways. It's our podcast, mate. It's not all about you, just because you're the guest. <laughs> uh, overrated because who the fuck knows if it's actually doing anything when you throw in uh, concentric and proper training on top of that I think it's too hard to tease out whether or not that's something beneficial and uh, yeah it doesn't uh, marry up to the time investments or the the pain <laughs> required to um, to do it in my opinion Could you see any redeeming features for doing some weighted stretching in addition to normal definitely, movement? Definitely eccentric loading uh, has been shown to be a quite a decent uh, stimulus for growth um, but yeah, I think if you're uh, at least play, paying attention to the um, the stretch um, and putting load under stretch uh, when you're performing full range of motion, um, 
contractions, then you should be good. I think um, topping it up with unnecessary uh, weighted stretches DC style is uh, overrated. Okay, that's fair enough. And that was a pretty like logical and sound answer. But can we get a bit more spicy? Like, do you want to tell people they look like a dickhead when they're doing it or anything? Yeah, you look like a dickhead. Perfect. All right. Is that it? No, yeah, no, that's no, a better that's... answer. <laughs> All right, overrated, underrated, or properly rattled? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Rattled? <laughs> you just said rattled. I think properly rated. Okay, why? Because he is a fucking king. He's got one of the best physiques that's ever walked the earth, and he did a lot for the sport, but he's not overrated because he's still the best bodybuilder of all time. And he's not underrated because I uh, sorry, Yeah. He's not underrated because everybody fucking knows how good he is anyway. So I think he's properly rated. Would you say he's the goat? Yeah, man. Really? If you're in pumping eye number one, then you are the fucking goat. Like That's, everything that is that, is that, that is, because of his um, impact on the culture? Yes. Like he's not the greatest bodybuilder of all time. From a yeah, but he, muscularity and leanness physique, right? Yeah, but it's different. You can't, I don't think you compare, uh, you can compare different um, periods of bodybuilding. Different mm-hmm. drugs, different knowledge, different everything. The way that I look at it with comparing sports uh, as, a body, as, a, as an expert in bodybuilding. No, no, I'm talking about comparing sports from different eras. So any sport, right? You have mm-hmm. to compare them against the people in their era and how dominant they were in their era. Correct. Right. So we're now in our, in our current era, all sports are more popular and all sports have a higher, higher um, number of people doing participating in them. Medieval jousting. Wrong. Shut up, Will. <laughs> Such a gun. Go on. <laughs> and has he won the most Olympias ever? He's got uh, seven, right? Or six? Six. I don't think he's... I think Phil, nah, Phil has the most now. I feel like Ron, Ronnie has the most, doesn't he? Ronnie, Ronnie, I think tied Arnold. Is that correct or not? Yeah, I think Ronnie tied and I think Phil, oh, fuck, I think Phil's got more. And I think one of Ronnie's wins, everybody says he shouldn't have got, like it was bullshit, but he just won it because he's Ronnie. Yeah, Jay should have beat him one year. Yeah. I think uh, Arnold probably had a few that he shouldn't have won as well, but, you know. I reckon this is a big call. It's a hard call. But if it wasn't for all the stuff that Arnie did outside of bodybuilding, that Ronnie would pip him as the goat bodybuilder. Because Definitely. within like within gym culture, the amount that Arnold Schwarzenegger's done is incredible. And the only person who can maybe rival him is Ronnie. But it's because he's like a cultural icon in every respect that Arnie's the goat. I agree that. with that. But yeah. that's like saying Muhammad Ali is the greatest boxer of all time when he's not. Which Wrong. Is- he's so good. He's not the greatest of all time, though. He's just the most influential. Yeah, sure. But, but that, 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 is a, that is a factor and part of the criteria for being it's, the greatest. It's, it is, but actually... Because if you're talking about the best boxer, if you said the best boxer of all time, then I think you could say that, yes, Muhammad Ali is not the best boxer. But if you say the greatest, I think that the term greatest, well, if you want to, to play semantics, it's, is going yeah, to encompass a lot more it's than totality. just the boxing It's totality. Yeah. It's resume plus everything else, right? But right, that, so does that outweigh the resume? The, co- the impact on the culture does it outweigh the resume? If you say the, the greatest of all time, then you are taking into consideration, into consideration everything. Depends, how much, weight you get, depends how much weight you give each category, right? 
yeah, of course. But I think I think society has a pretty good way of uh, assessing these kind of things. And if you ask anyone on the street or in the gym, the the greatest bodybuilder of all time, I think the majority would say uh, uh, Arnold. I think if you ask anybody on the streets or in the boxing world, the greatest boxer of all time, I think most would say Muhammad Ali. That's fair. Doesn't mean they're the best. I'm not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just raising debate. Fair. I would rather get in the ring with Ali by a long way than Mike Tyson. Like, oh, because, yeah. Is that because he's got Parkinson's? <laughs> well, well, he's passed away now, RIP. But, but <laughs> let's not go there. Yeah. It's like saying he'd rather go one on one with Kobe. Fuck, <laughs> oh, that's broke. Too soon. That's way too way soon. Too soon and you're a basketball jokes. fan. Yeah, you better pour some out for you, boy. That was disgusting. <laughs> All right, Jacob, you've got a chance. Bring out a topic. What do you reckon? Alex and I will answer it. All right. Uh, overrated, underrated, properly rated, under 85 powerlifting Australia competitor in the last two years. What? Pick one. Alex, I overrated. Want you, I, want you to give, I want you to give me one for each of those. Each of those categories. Oh, overrated, someone underrated, who's underrated. overrated and underrated. Okay. Correct. I'm, um, I'm making the rules here. This is my turn. Underrated. Gary Young. Mm, good, good call. Hasn't competed. Properly rated Ben Sellers. Overrated. Properly rated. Overrated Jacob Skeffers. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Jacob, I'm sorry. I'm doubling down on the pain. You're my overrated pick because when we were in Melbourne last year, I was saying to Alex, like, Surely, if he just makes two squats, he's he's a screaming good chance to win this comp. And what did you do? How many squats did One you make? Squat. One squat. <laughs> Jacob. Um, properly no. rated. Probably Alex. Like no, and no one thought he was going to win. I'm fine, but just, that's it. Yeah, he kind of mediocre. People are like, oh, he's that guy who's the offside. People always rate mediocre people about where they should be rated. Yeah, 100%. So Alex is that. That's fine. And I actually think Ben Sellers might be a bit underrated. And the reason is, like, he won nationals. He's plainly a good lifter. But people just don't talk about him. Jacob, do you want to give everybody who might want to get in touch with you for coaching inquiries and the like your contact details so that they can find you and exact revenge? If you want revenge, come fight me. Come fight me at JPS Health and Fitness. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, JPS Health and Fitness on Instagram. JPS Education on Instagram as well. Um, and then if you want some very unuseful, very uninformative contents and dad jokes, you can follow me, Jacob Skeppers, um, on Instagram as well. But otherwise, that's about it, mate. I've actually very much enjoyed the dad jokes. They're right on my alley. They are They're good. good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback. All right. I'm Will. That's at W.BerkmanPT on Instagram. I'm Alex at Alex Hayes underscore process. We'll catch you guys next week.